0: Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 11 verses 5 and 6. If you would stand with me in reverence of the reading of God's Word, please. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: We're going to continue today in our exploration of faith what that looks like for us in the New Testament, what that looks like in light of everything that we have read and explored all the way through Hebrews. The title of today's sermon is The Great Reward. The Great Reward. I don't know about your extracurricular reading activity. I know that the studies show that most people stop reading books after high school uh, because in high school they're already just faked reading books so it stops pretty early on but at least twice a year I like to try and read a leadership or a self-development book of some kind. Inevitably they all in some fashion use the word goal. I don't know how many of you are notably goal-oriented uh, but I, I always have been. My parents, my teachers, my coaches, they always pushed me and, and brought me towards goals. Sometimes it was my goals, Uh, often though, it was their goals. Uh, And those are good and and loving often, but not necessarily in sync with me. What I found interesting over the years is that everyone actually has goals. Whether you describe yourself as goal-oriented, whether you could tell me what they are right now, everyone actually has goals in life. And while many have set them high, most have set them too low. Usually because they don't even realize that they've set them at all. But they do when they are there, when you are straining towards them. So I would ask today at the beginning, do you know what your goals are? Whether you've consciously set them or whether you were actually to stop and look at your life and say, what is it that I'm chasing? What are those things I know that for a lot of people, it's simply just trying to just trying to make it to Friday, the end of the week, right? It's all too common also to just be trying to make it to the next paycheck. I, I know that one. When the bank account gets bigger again. One of my personal goals, I don't know about you, especially this year, uh, in light of our weather, is just to make it to the end of summer. That's my goal. Um, I am passively leaking all the time and uh, I'm tired of it. It's really hot. I'm trying to make it to the end of summer. Maybe it's just to make it one more year with your spouse or maybe even just one more conversation. You're never sure how it will turn out. Or tragically, maybe the same thing could be said and be true about you with an aging or an ailing parent. Maybe it's to make it through this next year with this teacher or looking forward to high school or college, or a career, or marriage, or kids, or promotions, or houses, or vacations, or hobbies, or retirements, or grandchildren, or, well, and then it's all over. I think terribly most of our aspirations and our dreams and our goals devolve simply into just survival. I'm just trying to make it if i could just get to or through or one more day what are your goals do you know why you're living today what are you after what are you chasing and even if you do know those then the question would be what should your goals be pastor rossy i'm a goal oriented person and i can tell you exactly where i want to be in 5 years 10 years 15 years how many spouses uh, not spouses, how many of my kids will have, uh, what kind of spouse? That's later in Genesis. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I know exactly who my kids are going to marry. I know what they're going to do. I already have careers lined up for them. This one's going to live in this part of the state. This one's going to live here. This person has the aptitude for that. I know exactly what my goals are. But are there good ones? What should I be chasing Should we have these goals at all? Is there something that the scriptures would have us aspire to? And what would that be? We watched uh, the second Wonder Woman movie uh, just last night. And inside of that, spoiler alert, but it's four years old. The question is asked, what do you wish for? What's that one chief desire that you have? And it happens over and over and over and over and over with every character throughout the whole movie. What do you wish for? What do you want? Think Aladdin to the extreme. What do you want? If you had one wish, not three, but one, what would you wish for? And it was a weird question for me because as you listen to what the characters are saying, it's very predictable as you would expect for plot devices and also why that movie tanked. But when you think about your life, what do you want? And I don't know what I would wish for anymore. I know what I would as I look back over my life, but I'm very happy with what I have, who I have. I could always use more money, more safety, more whatever. What would I actually desire? What would I wish for? And I don't know anymore. I've checked off a lot of that list that I read earlier. I don't know what else I'm waiting for. So what do I chase then if I've already met all my goals? See how quickly this kind of gets really confusing and falls apart if we don't Have something to aim at, or if the things that we're aimed at don't really matter. This is what I particularly love so much about using the 4Gs and DNA and in doxa and in counseling in general, because it speaks so clearly to our motivations, speaks so clearly to the motivations of which drive us towards what we do in our worship, whether it's of God or whether it's of things. What do these motivations say about me and about what I am chasing? Because motivation, apart from the Word of God, can often be very slippery, very elusive. You think about weight loss, and you think about working out, you think about exercise, you think about jobs, you think about hobbies, and everyone's looking for more motivation. So we have motivational speakers, we have motivational books. I even carefully termed the books that I like to read as leadership or (laughs) self-development. Because then the rest of them are just self-help and gurus and all of these things. Motivation is slippery. It's elusive. You're always going to run out of motivation. But when it comes to what we're supposed to chase because of what God's Word has for us, it's informed through the Word, and that drives not just motivation, but discipline and desire and worship and love. And the four G's speak to that so clearly. But the question is really answered quite easily. What is your goal? Well, it's whatever you're seeking. What are you chasing? What are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow night? What are you doing tomorrow afternoon at three thirty four? What are you chasing now? What are you spending your life seeking? And it's so painfully obvious so often for many of us that are not the person that we're looking at, but the rest of us as we watch someone, right? It's hard for us to see ourselves, but anytime we're looking at someone else, it's painfully obvious often what it is that they are chasing after, what they're seeking. But we have to have eyes to see, we have to have those around us that would tell us what it is we are chasing, we have to have ears to hear. If you're going to correct your goal, then you have to first know what you're chasing now. And my fear is that for the majority of us, we don't really know what we're chasing. And that's a scary place to be. Because if you don't know where you are now, you don't know how to course correct. Our text introduces us today to Enoch. I don't know if you're familiar with this character. It's preciously little written about him for as much happened to him. Enoch, verse 5 of chapter 11, tells us this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Who's this guy, right? Most of us know from Feltboard uh, Sunday School, who Cain and Abel are, right? We're familiar with that name. And he follows it up with this guy. No one knows. Enoch, right? Enoch. Enoch was pretty well known in Jewish tradition, particularly because of what I just read. Like, dude disappeared. God took him. Much was written about him in the extra-biblical rabbinic texts. Where does he come from? Genesis chapter 5, all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 5, 18-24. This is the account of Enoch. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years That, that's all we have. But that, that's, that's different, right? Something's different in there. Ten generations there are from Adam before the flood to Noah. Adam to Noah. Enoch is the seventh generation. And the pattern has been here from Adam, right? His pattern has been this. He was this many years old when he fathered so-and-so. He lived this many years after he fathered so-and-so. And he fathered sons and daughters, other ones. So his life lasted so many years, and then he died. And it happens six times in a row, from Adam to Enoch. With Enoch, something changes. But what was the pattern before? He died. And this is particularly disheartening, because only five chapters into this great book, especially if you're looking for what? Why is he only listing firstborns? Because we're looking for the promised seed of the woman, right? The seed of the woman. Is is, is this the next one? Is this the seed of the woman? And he died. Nope, not that one. Is this the seed of the woman? And then he died. Nope, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But what do we see with Enoch? Every commentator says this, a shining gem. You see, a shining gem in Enoch, this this, this phrase changes. Enoch walked with God. Now, there's some question as to when he walked with God. It says that he uh, lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. Then it says Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. So there's some question as to whether he was always walking with God. That's not the pattern of his forefathers. Or whether becoming a parent, as it often happens in our culture even, drives people back to realize, I can't do this on my own. I should probably get back in church, right? Same kind of thing. Did he only walk with God after? I don't think it particularly matters. That's not what we're talking about. It says it two times. He walked with God. That's what the scriptures care about, and that's what the author of Hebrews imports. He walked... With God. That is the astounding part, right? He walked with God. What does that sound like? That sounds sounds a little gardeny, if you ask me. No? The last time that we saw in this book that God walked with people was in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? And here that sounds really gardeny. And also, it doesn't say, and he died. But first of all, What a legacy, right? Inside of this snapshot, this this picture that we're given, what a legacy we have here. If we're just looking here and go ahead, scroll up and down in your Bible, which of these guys do you want to be? I mean, if we're looking for an, an ideal goal, I'd say, let's pick this guy. He walked with God. I mean, how do you want to be known? What do you want your legacy to be? I remember hearing that question at least paying attention and processing it for the first time at the church that I grew up in I remember where I was sitting, and I guess it was probably the first time I realized that I would die. And I was thought, what do I want people to say about me? The answer at that time was more Davidic, I think, in nature. The, the phrase was, "I wanted to be known as a man of God. Could at the end of my life, Pastor Matt at my funeral, because I will die first say Rusty was a man of God? Can he say that? That's a big question. That was a scary question. Is that something that he'll be able to say? But I think I, I, my answers changed. Rather than just be a man of God, I think I want it to be someone who walked with God. This is a legacy. This is a legacy. How cool would it be if I were just running late, you know, on on Monday for work, and I'll show, you know, Jeff shows up and asks Matt, hey, is is Russ here? I'm like, no, I haven't seen Russ. Jeff goes, oh, that makes sense. Russ isn't here anymore because he's he's walking with God. He was here, now he's not, right? Took him. He's walking with God. That's an awesome legacy. Like, I want that to be the expectation, except then I would show up and cause all that to be in question. But nonetheless... I want to be known as someone that walks with God. He was here, and now he's not. If I could instill anything in you today, it's, it's this. Your goal, our goal in life, should be to walk with God. It's really easy. Chapter 11's been really easy. God speaks, things happen. You should listen to his word. God says how to do things, and if you do it, he'll honor you. If you don't, you bring curse. Walk with God, it will go well with you. <laughs> this is how we live out all the promise that we've seen so far in Hebrews. Your goal, our goal in life should be to walk with God. That was what defined Enoch's life. Enoch was the seventh generation after Adam and the line of Seth, the replacement, if you will, for Abel. And there's a parallel happening here because in chapter 4, We see a different version of a story. It goes differently. We see instead the line of Cain. The line of Cain. Not the line of Seth. Adam through Seth. But we see Adam through Cain. Immediately, Cain rebels. He's supposed to wander in the wilderness for the rest of his days. What does he do? I'm going to set up my own city. That's that's what I'm going to do to follow God. I'm going to set up my own city rather than wander under the protection of God. He sets up immediately with rebellion. And then we see a pattern of that leading up to Lamech, the seventh generation of Adam in the line of Cain. So under Seth, Enoch. Under Cain, Lamech. Lamech is an arrogant, murdering bigamist. You could say that his goal in life was not to walk with God. Instead, he went around singing, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, and Lamech's is 77-fold. Arrogant, self-promoting, survivalist. It just kind of makes me wonder if maybe our legacy might actually line up more with that one instead. We're just not as loud
0: about it. Because our culture
1: is absolutely That got to do what's right for me, promoting ourselves, I'm the brand, making noise, trying to get mine, trying to just be seen, and then when we lose some steam, because life is hard, right, and we get bitter, we should read instead arrogant, entitled, angry, all of a sudden we're accidental Lamech's. I look at this, the world, us. I think back to last week, Pastor Matt reminded us of God's warning to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It's desire contrary to you, but you must rule over it.
0: It's well past the door. It's running the house.
1: I think inside the church, we can put on the front that we want. We can show up with our offering to worship, just as Cain showed up to offer. But what we see behind the face is bitterness, arrogance, entitlement, anger. All of these things that classify the line of Cain. Sin has gone past the door. It runs the house. How easy it is to do what the Pharisees said. Well, we're not of the line of Cain. We're not sons of Lamech. Don't worry about that. We're sons of Enoch. We're sons of, as they would say, Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. We get everything that he had, we get to be wrapped up under that promise. We're good. I don't need anything else. I have the promise. I have the law. I do all the law. I do extra on top of the law because I'm so lawy. I'm good. I'm a son of Abraham. What does Jesus say? No, you, in fact, are not sons of Abraham. I would like to inform you today that you are sons of your father, the devil. You are a liar, and you have been doing what the devil has been doing since the beginning, you son of the devil. That's what jesus says that's what he defines for these people who were doing everything right who were saying all the right things who showed up with their offering thinking that they were good and for us it's simply this i believe the gospel pastor russ i read my bible i believe the gospel i'm good That's what it means apparently to apply the gospel to my life is that I believe the gospel. But then the question is, are you arrogant? Are you entitled? Are you angry? Those are the ones I've already listed. Let's go for some new ones. Are you lustful? Are you materialistic? Are you vengeful? Are you bitter? Are you bitter? Are you hopeless? All the things that Galatians says are not fruits of the Spirit, but are fruits of the flesh. Then you're not good. And it's really hard to do that kind of funeral. Because that's your legacy. So-and-so was just angry all the time. They're so bitter. They, they weren't content with what they had. It's what we should be able to say, but we can't. So we give nice, happy things about their life. But their true legacy, if you were to look at the faces of everyone in the front three pews, is that they've experienced the the anger, the hurt, the bitterness, the the vengefulness. They know the hopelessness of what stands before them in that casket or lays, I suppose. They know what that means. They know what the true legacy is. Well, we can't lie to them about that. What is actually running your hope? What is actually running your motivation? What is actually running your desires? Because the comparison in Genesis is clear. There's a distinct difference here between each seventh son. Lamech's revenge is 77 fold. And Enoch, who walked with God 300 years. Enoch walked with God, it says again. So what legacy are you actually leaving? What are you actually chasing? Do you want to be known that way? Or the way of Enoch? You walked with God. So first, what a legacy. But second, we know where did he come from, but where did he go, right? Where did he come from? We know that. Where did he go? Verse 24 of chapter 5. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Our text in Hebrews explains and interprets this for us, hopefully. Verse 5 says this, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found. Why? Because God had taken him. So One, he didn't experience death. Only twice has this happened in all of the scriptures. But it will happen once more to a multitude. We know that. Now, I can't go into all that significance here. That's not the point of the text. But that's that's where he, he, he went, right? So third, why was he taken? This is an important question. Verse five, by faith. By faith. Faith walks with God. Walking with God, done by faith. I hesitate to overcomplicate things. Faith walks with God. Walking with God, done by faith. If you want to walk with God, if that's your goal, if that's your desire, if that's your one wish, then how is it to be done? It is to be done by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Now, to be honest, coming up with a chief life goal by simply taking the the lone superlative, Offered from a batch of pretty suspect patriarchs, some pretty suspect exegesis as well, to be fair. (laughs) I know that much. So, why am I so confident that this is to be our chief goal to walk with God? Let me give you the cheat sheet for the rest of our passage, and then we'll take each part. (coughs) Let's just walk through our passage. Ready? By faith, he was taken. Before he was taken, he was commended. What was he commended for? Pleasing God, right? You with me? He was taken because he was commended for pleasing God. So faith leads to pleasing God. No faith, no pleasing God. Cool? So, I want to please God. What is pleasing God then? Faith. But what is pleasing faith then. Drawing near. What is drawing near? Two things. Believing He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Pretty simple, right? Let's work backwards. If I want to be rewarded, (coughs) I need to seek Him. I can only seek Him if I believe He exists. If I know He exists and I'm seeking Him, I will find him I will draw near I will draw near in pleasing faith because I know he exists and that he rewards those who seek him and my pleasing faith will be commended if he comes back before you die you also will be taken up without dying you can be Enoch 3.0 super cool So if that's where we're working through here, my question of what should be your chief thing, it's this. This is what pleasing God looks like. Drawing near. He was commended as having pleased God. That's my goal. I want to please God. I want to hear good and faithful servant, right? Not depart from me. I never knew you. I want to know him. I want to please him. I want to be commended. How do I do that? I walk with him. I walk with God. Okay, Pastor Russ, color me convinced. I, too, also want to walk with God. How? How do I walk with God? What is pleasing faith? How do I truly draw near? You walk with God by drawing near at every opportunity. You walk with God by drawing near at every opportunity.
0: Let's break down our
1: cheat sheet. He was commended. What what are we talking about here? Our text interprets Genesis 5 for us, saying that he was commended for pleasing God, and this was done by faith. And it was by faith that he was taken up. But Praise God for verse 6, because it defines for us what that pleasing faith looks like. You can infer as much from the Genesis passage alone but you're still left with true questions of what does this actually look like what does that pleasing faith look like it just says that he walked with god and he seems to not have the problems of the other ones am i just supposed to avoid that is that what it means to be pleasing i'm struck by the past few sermons we've had of how do you do faith do you just do faith harder do you believe extra You just try to add more to what you got? How do I I believe harder? Just really, really believe. Just keep adding adjectives to our believe and to our faith. Compare it to the most sturdy thing. My faith is like a, a rock. Well, my faith is like a bridge. Well, my faith is like the Sears Tower. Well, my faith, you just make it... How do you... What is it? Faith is necessary to be sure because without faith it's impossible to please Him. But what is pleasing faith and how much do I have to have? And how do I do it? He says, For whoever would draw near to God. I cannot emphasize how important that phrase is. It is so crucial to our success as Christians, it is so crucial the rest of your life on this planet. Whoever would draw near to God, this is what we're doing in walking with God. Drawing near. It's not two sets of footprints on the beach and all of a sudden there was one and that's when he was carrying us. That's not walking with God. Drawing near. That's what we're after. That's what we're actually doing in walking with God. God willing, one day when someone says at my funeral, Rusty walked with God, they mean that I drew near to God at every opportunity. Moment by moment, we draw near as we walk with Him. Our author has shown us time and time again in this letter that we can draw near to God by the provision of Jesus Christ as our better priest, as our better king, as our better sacrifice, as our better covenant, of our better hope, as our better mediator. He is superior in every way. And if you don't catch it now, this is the final appearance of draw near in Hebrews. It won't come up again. So let's, let's see what he's been encouraging us with in drawing near in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 7, verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 25, in the same argument, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost who? Those who draw near to God. Through who? Him, Jesus Christ. Since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, holy, those who draw near. Only Jesus can do that, the once and for all sacrifice. Later in chapter 10, verse 22, it says, let us draw near then, because of that one true sacrifice, with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All along, he's been telling us what? Come closer. Come closer. Draw near.
0: Know me. Why is this so significant? Don't forget. These people...
1: Left Egypt from slavery. Delivered from that. Brought to a mountain in the wilderness. And they what? Met God. Hadn't seen God's presence since the garden. Sin separated man from God. Sin took man out of the garden. The dwelling place of God on this earth man no longer
0: walked with God
1: Promises made, covenants made. They get to the mountain. God's presence is here. What does He do? He makes a way for them to draw near. He starts in another covenant, the Mosaic covenant, saying, "What? I will be your God." You will be my people. What does he do? As their God, he makes them his people. He provides a way to know him. He makes himself clear in the law of showing his character. He exposes all of who he is in a way that we can understand. Perfect holiness and the expectation that we match up to it. Knowing that we won't match up to it. Knowing that we need a place to interact with him. He gives the command for the tabernacle. That it should be built. That it needs to be fashioned. Why? So that he can have fellowship with us. He knows that we can't have fellowship with him. So what does he then do? Provides sacrifices because our sins separates us still. And he provides a way back to him. Every time. Meant to be done daily. As we talked about even in our class today as we explored Leviticus. Y'all missed out. We explore Leviticus and see all of these sacrifices that happen daily for the individual. Every time you go to worship, you come with something in your hands. And what have we seen here in Hebrews? You show up empty handed. Sacrifice has already been offered. And now we find that we can draw near finally at the tabernacle. We can know our God again. He has made a way. And then what does Hebrews tell us? You don't have to do that anymore. Not at the tabernacle, not at the temple. That's not the way. The way now was that the once and for all has been done. The shadow, all the stuff that you've experienced here, it's a shadow of what really happened up there. He went up there, he sprinkled the blood on the altar once and then seven times on the front. It's done. No more blood. It's been paid. Now, draw near. How are we going to draw near? Not only can you have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by the veil, the new veil that has been torn, that is his flesh. But now I will see fit to make my residence in you. Drawing near God to man from the beginning over and over and over and over again. But that's not the last draw near that we see. There's another one. It's different than what we've been experiencing, but it's similar. It's similar. So from this scale, we have God coming to man, drawing near, calling us to draw near to him. But then we have chapter 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I, for one, am convinced that this is a purposeful play on the words. As God has been pursuing us this way and we have the opportunity to meet Him, the final day of the consummation of all that is getting closer as well. And each day it's coming from the other way. Closer and closer and closer. We've been warned of the judgment. We've been warned of persevering that we would see that day with success. And if we fail to draw near this way, this one will be here before we know it. How dangerous it is for us to neglect drawing near moment by moment. So, I wonder then, over the last year, how are you drawing near to God? Are you closer to Him? If that's too big of a scale, what about this week? How are you drawing near to God? You'll notice that in Leviticus, they have a pattern set up for how they are to draw near. It's not a question regularly daily and with exact specifications take this many animals use this object to do the sacrifice not this one if you do that wrong nice effort still sin now you have more to sacrifice for very specific rhythms very specific examples if your life doesn't have that kind of regular rhythm of drawing near you're probably not drawing near
0: Do you see him at work
1: in your life? Can you look back and see those stones, those piles of stones that we talk about in Joshua, these remembrances, these altars of what God has done? Can you see him at work in your life? Do you see mercy and grace in your life? That's the touchstone of our God. Do you see hope in him?
0: You hear his prayers for you,
1: interceding even now as your mediator in the throne room. You see your life being made perfect and conforming to him. You see confident assurance, a clean conscience, a pure body. All of these things that we're told we will have. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, if we're going to draw near to God, it certainly and primarily comes from reading and knowing His Word. We talk about that at length all the time. That's verse 3, right? But how do you keep drawing near when you're done reading? How do I draw near the rest of the Sabbath when I leave this place? I have found that people can't answer that question. They don't feel like they're drawing near to God unless they are actively reading their Bible.
0: Or hear and singing. If you can't answer that question, you're not going to make it.
1: You're not. The pinnacle of our faith is the Word of God. It certainly is the engine that drives all of this. I'm not discounting that at all, but you don't read the Bible all day. Most people don't read it daily. So how do you draw near to God, first of all, if you're not reading, and then second of all, when you're not reading, right? i want to read this from one commentator. He says this, the drawing near to God of which this verse speaks should not be understood in the limited sense of drawing near only at times of worship, but in the comprehensive sense of drawing near to God at all times, in our daily occupations as well as in our church going, in prosperity as well as in adversity, the nearness, that is to say, of uninterrupted communion with Him of the kind that Enoch enjoyed so that it could be said of Him that He Walked with God. It is a relational drawing near. It is a relational drawing near. The fear that I have of people that can't answer that question is that oftentimes that can be reflected in, in their marriage. How do I continue to draw near to my wife when I'm not actively speaking or listening to her? Can that be done? The answer is yes, <laughs> just in case you, uh, it's not the cliffhanger. There's, there's other ones. You can draw near to your spouse beyond the times that you're talking, listening, or with each other. That can be done. The relationship persists. It's bigger than that. It's more intimate than that.
0: Before I get ahead of myself,
1: let's see what the, what the Bible tells us. How does it tell us to draw near? It answers this question for us. Whoever would draw near to God must do two things. What? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Number one, you must believe he exists. This seems so elementary. It's crazy. I I read my passage for this week and I'm like, don't know really how to explain that it's, it says what it says. Like, you must believe he exists. If you want to draw near to God, you must believe he exists. Like, that's the key. And we, we kind of laugh at that, but like any fundamental, it clues us into everything that, that follows. What's, what's crazy about such simple things is that it discounts a lot of other things and includes everything that matters. For instance, every year in football, beginning of the season, every year in baseball, beginning of the season, every year of any sport, beginning of the season, what do we do? Fundamentals, right? Can't hit each other yet, still acclimating, all that jazz. Let's do fundamentals. So for the umpteenth year, I get to learn how to get down in a three-point stance, which is annoying because I never got in a three-point stance. I was a center. My hand was always on the ball. So it didn't even particularly help me. Nonetheless... Here I am again, learning a three-point stance. What does a three-point stance tell you? Do you imagine that I'll probably stand up immediately after the play starts, having already gotten down low and with my hand on the ground? You think standing up is the first thing I'm gonna do? Only if I'm a freshman, right? And only once, because it hurts. No, you don't. I'm not gonna stand up. I'm probably gonna go flying forward. That's why I'm leaning forward. You think I'm gonna stay high or low? Probably low. That's why I'm starting low, right? Do you think I'm going to go that way? Probably not. That's why I'm facing this way. That matters, right? There's a lot that you can define from the starting point, from a fundamental. Do you think that I'm probably going to catch catch the ball? No, because I'm staying low and there's large men in front of me, right? No. There's a lot that you can figure out from simple fundamentals. It means something because it serves what you're doing. Fundamentals matter. This fundamental matters. Because can you actually have faith in something that doesn't exist? I would argue no. I would argue no. I think it's more than semantics. Reality matters. Truth matters. What exists, verse 3, matters because it comes from the speaking of a holy God. Faith in nothing is not faith. Faith in nothing is nothing. Faith in God is everything. Now, for the sake of whoever might be smaller than you seated next to you, imagine the jolly man that comes around every December, right? He doesn't exist, okay? Can
0: you have faith in him? No. (laughs) It's not real.
1: The bunny. The fairy. Can you have faith in these things? You can say it. Is it real? It's not. That's my argument. We have other discussions on this. The important aspect of this is, does it hold? It can't because it's not real. And we laugh about the, the fictional figures, but... What other fictional figures do we have? Gay marriage? Gay mirage, as we would, we would call it? Can you have a marriage that, between two gay people? No. It's not real. That's not what marriage is. Can you say that you have it? Can you believe that that's the case? Yeah. Is it real? No. The trans community. I believe that I'm this that's cool you're not it's not cool anymore you're lying I think that I'm this I believe that I'm this I have faith that I'm this it's not real it's not real faith it might be funny haha it's obvious we know that That's our team whatever you want to call it what about you? You have faith in
0: yourself. You believe in yourself. What can you do?
1: What that you say happens because you have the power to make things happen from your speaking. What can you do apart from the grace of a sovereign God who empowers you to actually accomplish anything? What can you do that will last for eternity and through the fire that will test all of our works as done apart from the mercy and grace of God? Faith in yourself, it's not real. It's not real. So now this simple thing of if we would draw near to God, we must believe that he exists is not just pretty fundamental, but pretty serious. Yeah, I can't cozy up to something that's not real. I can't grab a mug that's not there. It has to exist for me to draw near to it. He has to exist for me to draw near to it. Now, there's no question about this from the author. He doesn't even seek to give a defense for it. In fact, he didn't even start the book with a defense. He just assumes that it's the case. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I'll forget He exists. No, God spoke. This is the case. The presupposition is that God is. Because He is. That's reality. That's the truth. That's what's actually there. A the commentator says this, God is not a metaphysical concept for questioning and discussion. He is the supreme reality and the foundation and source of all created being. Hence, when the readers advise that to draw near to God, he must believe that he exists. He's not being invited to take a step into the dark, but instead to turn to the light. He's not being encouraged to work up a blind faith, but to entrust the whole of his being to him who is himself truth and light and life. The offering of ourselves to God is indeed our reasonable service, Romans 12.1. As one other person says the verb must hear, expresses not so much a moral obligation as a logical necessity. This is not to deny, however, that refusal to acknowledge the existence of God is as immoral as it is irrational. The author is saying it's so obvious God is. You must believe that he is. If you don't, it's irrational. It doesn't make sense to not believe that God exists. Also, it's immoral. It's wrong to believe that he doesn't exist. Don't get suckered into defending the fact that God exists by your friends and coworkers out there. He does. Start there. The burden of proof's not on you. Creation testifies to this. And in fact, if you keep your mouth shut, it'll do the talking for you. So go out there and tell people what is. Not only does he exist, not only is this fundamental, but this clues us into the relationship component of this that I alluded to earlier. And so draw near, walk with him. He's there. He came to you. He's been telling you to draw near, to draw near, to draw near. I made a way. I'm talking for you. I'm praying for you. I'm mediating for you. Draw near to me with confidence so walk with him and that should change everything for us that should change what it means to actually be a Christian that should change the way and will change the way that I parent my kids the fact that Jesus is always around he is here (laughs) he's always around Back when I was in uh, youth group, we had uh, a guy come in and, and the, the idea was this practicing the presence and that's stuck with me. And I used to do weirder things like sit in front of an empty chair while I read my Bible and whatnot as if he was reading to me, but that was, you know, emotional high school rusty. So, um, <laughs> just, just being honest, so you can skip that phase, okay? Uh, practicing the presence. He's, he's always here. He's always here. We've, we've talked about that in the sense of, of our spiritual warfare, and the fact that the enemy is always around. Even now, those birds come down and pluck the seed that is scattered. Jesus is here. Does that change the way that you live? Does that change the things that you look at on your phone? Does that change the words that you speak to a friend? Does that change the way you speak about another person? Does that change the way that you obey your parents? To change the way that you do your job. To change the way that you color in the paper. That you make the cut. That you design the software. That you fix things. That you do your stuff. He's watching. Not in a Santa Claus way and that you'll get put on the naughty list, but because he's drawing near to you. So, do you do life like a Christian? Are you bearing his name rightly? That's the other thing that these people would know better than us. They were God's people to the world, his name was on them. If the Egyptians wanted to know what God was supposed to look like, it was supposed to look like the Israelites. If the Assyrians wanted to know what the God of the universe looked like, they were just supposed to be able to look at the Israelites. If our culture wants to know what God looks like, they're supposed to be able to look at his Christians. And so, does your life do 2 Corinthians 5? Are you an ambassador bearing the name well? When we sing things like, Oh, praise the name, the name that's on us, we should represent it well. He is always around. One commentator said this as the account of the fall in Genesis 3 shows, the failure of faith manifests itself in rebellion. In rebellion against God's authority, questioning his goodness, and denying the truth of his word. That's what the serpent does, right? Did he really say? You got really mean? They rebel against God's authority. They question his goodness. They deny the truth of his word. He goes on to say, to abandon faith is to behave as though God were not there. To abandon faith is to behave as though God were not there. The man without faith is the man who wickedly attempts to suppress the truth about God. Romans 1.18 He cannot possibly be included in the number of those who please God. To repudiate faith is to sever the lifeline which links the creature to his creator and is thus to lose the very meaning and purpose of one's existence. It is to be without God and therefore without hope in the world. Ephesians 2.12. So even this past week, as another report comes out, reporting on the amount of people in the United States who believe that God even exists, the very question of today is at an all-time low. We find a culture that has lost the very meaning and purpose of their existence. So they fabricate it out of anything and everything that they can. They believe anything and everything that they can create becoming inventors of evil as the scripture says that they might identify themselves with that that they might in some way be seen when there's a creator who wants them to draw near to himself church don't abandon faith our rebellion our sin is when we behave as though God were not there that I can take five minutes to myself and then I'll re engage with God. That I can go do this thing that I want to do and then I'll re engage with God and He'll forgive me. That's His thing. We cannot suppress the truth. We are His example to the world. We won't be numbered among those who please God if we abandon faith and repudiate this lifeline. He's always around. We are in relationship with him. So you want to know, how do you actually walk? Be in relationship with him all the time. Everything that you do, you do as a Christian. As we talked about last week or the week before, the Bible has something to say about everything. Everything that you do, you can do as a Christian. That's what I try to filter my whole life through. As we look through our lenses that we have, our various ones, or I'm a, a father and a husband and a pastor and a man and, and whatever else I have that I look through the world at, the first lens that I have, the first spectacles that I have are Christian. I look through the blood of Christ at everything that I do. That's the way I am designed to, to, to be as one of his people. Don't hear me saying I don't sin, Okay. I already do this perfectly. But this is the design, okay? You look through the lenses of the blood of Christ, and everything else is filtered through that. Which means that when I'm done reading my Bible, I walk around and I think about the Bible. When I go to the kitchen, I think what should I eat that will honor God? How should I cook that will honor God? How do I honor God through cooking? By what will care for my family. I will care for my wife. What will care for our budget. What will help us explore what God has created. I don't only eat Italian. or Well, I would only eat Mexican if I could, but we move out. I explore the rest of the foods that God has in this world. It honors him. That's a Christian thing to do. When I go to work, I think about the different problems and struggles that our flock has that I'm supposed to tend to. I pray for you over the verses that speak to that. We talk as pastors about counsel that we would give as the verses that speak to that. When I go home and I parent, I see the challenges and sins and struggles. And guess what? The Bible has something to say about that. And whether I take them to verse, chapter, and verse, I speak as God would speak. And I commune with him as I commune with them. That's drawing near. Do you have the word of God on your mind as you walk through your life? That's what Pastor Matt was talking about. To draw near to God is to take his word into everything that we do. And guess what happens when you do that? Whether you encounter other people's sin or your own sin, and you bring the word to bear on that, you get this part. He rewards those who seek him. There's... (laughs) There's no better promise in the Bible, in my opinion, than this. He rewards those who seek him. You get what? God. He's the reward. If you're trying to draw near to him, he's not going to give you something else. He's the good God who doesn't give someone a rock when they ask for a loaf of bread. Right? He gives you bread. If you're seeking him, he's not going to give you everything else. He's going, to seek, he's going to give you that which you were seeking after, him. You get God. You get God in the same way that a spouse offers themselves to the other spouse. I'm in relationship with you. I'm going to do the rest of my life with you. I'm with you even when I'm not with you. I know you even when we don't seem to know each other. I speak for you, to you, even when I'm not speaking for you and to you. I am with you. I am yours. You have me. You get me. You get God. He's the reward. This isn't new. This is the culmination of it. From the tabernacle, you get back into fellowship with Him. Did you get out of fellowship with Him? Did you sin? Here's how you get back into fellowship. Here's how you have the Day of Atonement and now you're justified. Here's how you look forward to the Messiah and you trust the once and final sacrifice. Here now is how you actually live with me and dwell in you. And guess what? One day you'll be with me in the new kingdom. And we'll see each other face to face. Before we couldn't see the glory of the Lord. But with unveiled eyes, we will see him as he is
0: and get our final reward. What goal are you chasing? What reward do you want? Is that good enough? If you seek Him, you will find Him.
1: He promises that. How do you do that? You believe He exists, and you believe that He rewards you when you draw near through all of the ways that He's already provided. Don't stop. Don't stop. Seek your great reward. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself. Father, there's no question, the, the route, the way, the manner, the attitude, any of it, in which way we are supposed to live. There's no question. Father, forgive us for denying your existence. We do it all the time. Father, we don't trust your word. That says us to believe that you are not real. That you didn't say what you said. Father, when we're called to question as the serpent would have us be tempted, whether you're good. No, you're good. You're gracious. You're great. You're glorious. You are all of these things. Father, you've designed each of us to, to love these things in different measure. Let us seek that. Let us know your glory. Let us know your graciousness, your greatness, your goodness. Father, these are the things that I chase after. I love the creation that you have made. I see you in it. Father, let us see these things. Let us chase these. Let us recognize that as we pursue that, we're pursuing you. Father, let us be that example to the world. When people look at, at Christ the Lord Church in Dayton, they would see you. Because we walk with you. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.